Oh, Father, let our souls and spirits ever be hidden in the breast of deity, in the realms of heaven, with our Savior and our God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'll read verses 31 and 32, but really I want to focus on 32. And so here we are. Now, if you've been paying attention, you don't need me to read the whole thing again from chapter 1 up to here like I did last week. <laughs> um, so 31 begins, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Father, in Jesus' name, we pray, Father, that you would unlock to us any mystery in this word that is not apparent, but we praise you that your whole gospel is spoken in this one verse, Father, and we ask you to open it to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It seems plain enough, but it is a stumbling block. And I can tell you, I have had a personal relationship with this verse. Every now and then, I tell you that. I had a personal relationship with this verse. I have a personal memory of a time when preaching this verse um, brought me a little uh, criticism. And so I'm going to ask Dwayne, would you hit the lever so that the seat restraints would come down and no one be able to escape. Just lean back a little so the bar doesn't hit you on the way down. No, it's a verse I have a personal relationship with. And what I'm talking about is many years ago at a church, I was a young preacher. I don't even know if you could call me a preacher yet. It's just every now and then my old pastor would say, why don't you preach? And so um, about, I'm going to say about 30 years ago, I was preaching in a local church and I I wasn't speaking specifically on this text or this passage, but I made a passing reference to what I thought was a matter of widespread agreements. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. Seems plain enough. Um, I thought it was a plain matter in the evangelical churches. I didn't think it was groundbreaking. I said a couple things in passing. I was too soon to find out how wrong I was. I preached from another text on the efficacy of the cross. In other words, friends, Jesus isn't a cheerleader hoping some people get saved. He is a savior dying for a specific amount of people that he chose for salvation before the foundation of the world. He can do that. He's the kind of architect that can do that. So I was soon to find out that the efficacy of the cross and the active participation of God the Father and the Holy Spirit in the crucifixion were not known. So I drove home the point about the efficacy of the cross, and almost in passing I said these words, Christ did not die on the cross for nothing. And then I said this, God did not kill Jesus for nothing. Now I have to tell you, I remember the day as a young Christian, you know when you're in the room and you're in there with the people of God and the Holy Spirit's in there and everybody's 
in a sort of a communal spirit. You can feel it. You know what I mean? And there's an excitement about it. And I knew the sermon was well-received. I knew nobody was mad or anxious about it. But I threw in those last two things, and I didn't know what I had stepped into. Um, it was an assurance sermon. Who doesn't like an assurance sermon? You know? Where I am, there you will be also. I go to prepare a place for you. You're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, all, everybody loves that stuff, right? It was an assurance teaching. We love to be told that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We love to hear <clears throat> that though we are sheep to the slaughter, that in all things we're yet more than conquerors in him who loved us. I love just saying it. It gives me a little bit of a, can it be so, Lord? And so it was, it was one of those preaching moments when you know, as the speaker, that you've been heard and received. I wasn't worried about being attacked or being beheaded or anything, you know, stoned. I didn't think any of that was going to happen. I was, I was sort of feeling it, you know. It's a good feeling for a preacher to know that he brought some people along and, and we communed over the deep meaning of the Word of God. And so um, I came down for the platform, and the congregation was joyous, and I knew most of the people in, in the room. It was a big room, it was probably twice the size of this, and full to capacity. And it was a triumphant moment for a young preacher like myself. I'm 66 today. If this was 30 years ago, it's 36. I started pastoring here at 39, by the way. Um. So I started to receive commendations. It's a wonderful thing when people say, oh, Pastor, that sermon was for me today. You know, people say that stuff. And, you know, I may have been aiming at you or not. And if you say to me, were you aiming at me this morning? I'm going to say, yep. Yes, I was. Holy Spirit and me were on your case. He had me in a half Nelson saying, preach to Donnie this morning. <laughs> and so I came down and, and people were, were joyous. And they were full of the Spirit, and they, and they had received the Word, and they were glad. However, as this was happening, I also received one of those commensurate little critiques, one of those little tweaks that they just assumed, oh, Dan, you did, you did a great job, but I think in the, in, the, in the heat of the moment, you said something a little hastily, and um, this dear lady came up and whispered in my ear a correction to what I had said, and this is what she said, God did not kill Jesus, our sin killed Jesus. I'm here to dispel that piece of heresy for you this morning. All right? Um, your sin didn't kill anybody. Can you imagine saying that to a judge? I didn't kill him, Lord. It was my sin. Remember anyone old enough to remember Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You did it. The sinner's responsible for the sin. Our sin didn't do anything except tempt us to do the wrong thing, and we fell for it. So I received that, that I had spoken hastily, and it was forgivable, obviously, young preacher. You know, you spoke in the excitement of the moment. Another friend came up, a personal friend. I, 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 thought, I thought he had his doctrine straight. I thought we were on the same path, but he intended to, he didn't intend to, to criticize it or give me a harsh Critique, again, he just wanted to tweak it and tell me, you know, Danny, I don't know if you realize what you said. He said, you said God killed Jesus. And I said, um, uh, he expected me to say, D did I say that? 
Oh, in the, in the excitement of the moment, I, I actually said something like that? Shedding a bad light on a holy deity? His wife was standing by. It seems they had talked about it. And they came up to tell me. I remember them. They were, they were dear friends. And um, they wanted to let me know just to, so I could repent about it. I could be ready for the onslaught of criticism that was going to come. And I could humbly repent and hopefully clarify myself better in the future. And I think that's all the hope was. Um, I was, of course, dumbfounded. And it was not in the way they thought I would be. I did not retract my declaration. I doubled down on it. The Bible says, I told them, God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. They looked to one another for assurance, for assurance that I was not only not repenting from an egregious error, but I was doubling down on the statement. How could, how could these things be? I was even offering a proof text to show them that I didn't speak in haste. I spoke in glory. I know that, look, when you're searching your mind for the response, oh, God didn't spare his own son. What will I say to that? What scripture can I find to cancel out that scripture? And that's what we tend to do. Um, I talked about that last week. It's never true that scripture contradicts scripture. And if it does, then you're either interpreting one or both of the, of the passages wrongly. Now, I thought maybe it's the word spare. So I, I looked today, as I was preparing this, I looked in some of the versions. Uh, this, I read from the New King James, as you know, the God-inspired version. And um, I'm kidding when I say that, for the, you critics at home. But um, I looked in the ESV, it said spare. I didn't look at all of them, but spare is a good word, right? But I'm wondering, maybe, maybe it's the word spare. He did not spare. And the word is Phidomai, the Greek lexicon has it, to forego the infliction of that evil retribution which was designed. As usual, it's very wordy in the lexicon. Um, the English dictionary gave the meaning much better. There's different words. Spare, you could have a spare something. You could have a spare change. Right, same word. You could have a spare tire. Right, Extra tire. Maybe that's the trouble. Maybe spare. People don't know what spare means. So I looked up in the English Bible and it said spare means to refrain from killing. That's a quote. From killing, injuring, or distressing. To allow to live is to spare. Right? So let's read it this way. He who did not refrain from killing his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also Give us all things. Pretty clear. Let me give you an illustration. See this enough today in the news. Gunman walks into a convenience store. There's a clerk and a cashier behind the cash register. And he holds the gun up and he says, give me the money or I'll kill you. So what do you do? Well, the cashier had had enough of this and he wouldn't give him the money. He got shot dead. And, the, and he goes to the, to the clerk and he gives him the money guy means it. He killed the cashier, but he spared the clerk. You see, that, that's all it is. He didn't spare the cashier, meaning he killed him. That's what it means. But this was probably the first time that I considered that even among a, quote, sovereignty crowd, a group that knows that God's behind every action, every design, every event in the universe, 
They know this. But for some reason, we have this thing where we want to protect his character. I'm in a sovereignty crowd. I thought I was okay. And so the commensurate arguments began to flow out. In other words, the usual suspects came out. The usual suspects. But God is love. But how could a loving God kill his own son? It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. That's what all the hymns tell us. I realized for the first time that so many evangelicals see God as passive. Friends, I'm giving you today what is perhaps the most important sermon of your life because it'll make you realize that God is in charge and is not passive. He's standing, they, they, they picture him as sort of standing by, sadly watching the crucifixion of his son. You know, it reminds me of some of those old hymns that I love, by the way. But I think of this, you know, remember this song? It's like a, it's like a southern um, uh, folk hymn. It's like, Sweetly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling, Oh, sinner, come home, come home. I, I mean, I just don't see Jesus. Oh, he's just, come home. <laughs> Oh, little sinner, come home. I mean, I don't, this is, I, I think this is what we've created for ourselves. Oh, another verse, I'll go, no, just kidding. Um, I just don't see it that way. The Bible doesn't give us that picture. I know the hymns do sometimes, but God doesn't. How could a loving God kill his own son? For love of the church. He's loving the church. He's venting wrath that should have been vented on the church, on the object of his love. His greatest love. He's venting his wrath on his greatest love for the sake of the church. Of course, knowing all the while he's going to raise him up again. How could a loving God kill his own son? It was our sin that killed him. And so I I see that they see this God passively standing by. He's been put on the defensive by the vicious envy and malicious hate of small-minded, sinful men. Poor God, what's he to do now? Our poor passive God is left with the loathsome chore of watching the sin of man determine for him his next move. Oh, what will these evil priests do now? What's left in my toolbox? How sad he must have been when he saw what these men did to Jesus. Friends, I want to disabuse you of that notion. You can't know the glory and believe that that happened passively and without God's intent. So I realize that so many of us have missed the glory of the cross comprised in a single verse. This is all the gospel story is. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up. For us, the church. And at the same time, the implications of the cross. So that's the, that's the, uh, the um, actual event of the crucifixion. But then there's the implications of it. Well, how shall he not also with him give us all things? If he gave us his son, why wouldn't he give us everything else? So I take the biblical route to point out types further on in the message Um, that should have been clues to this purpose, we should first turn, though, to the prophecy that should 
have taught us what to expect from a sovereign God. From Isaiah we read this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And now as I read that, I'm thinking, do people know what smitten is? I think they they think it means falling in love. Oh, he's smitten. (laughs) It, um, It does mean that. It's another one of those problematic words. We esteemed him... The prophet's prophesying the Messiah on the cross, saying he was smitten by God. He was struck as with a fist. He smote him, smitten by God, and afflicted. I looked up smite, to strike with a firm blow, or to strike down with a weapon. And then he went on. The second half of our verse, Isaiah's rendering is, but he wounded him for our transgressions. He wounded him For our transgressions. There's not even a mention of a priest. There's not even the mention of a Roman governor. It's God wounded him for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That's the gospel. It's called substitutionary sacrifice. We should have been smitten by God. We should have been wounded for our own transgressions. But no, he who did not spare his own son delivered him up for us all. I think so many of us today see the cross as a great tragedy in history. We draw God into our view of the cross as as tragic and as defeat. And the next step in our theology is to say that though God was taken aback by how sinful men can be, in his magnificence decided to make the most of the moment and to use the death of Christ as the payment for the very sins of those who carried out the execution. God said, well, they killed him. I'll take this moment to show how magnificent I can be, or magnanimous I can be, and forgive them. The popular teaching of the cross is that it was entirely the work of fickle governors and envious priests. Others say it was the work of the devil. Oh, the devil crucified Christ. He prompted weak and blind and sinful men to carry out the bloodlust of their hearts. The devil did it. It was the devil that killed the Savior. For him, it was a great victory. He failed to kill Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem through Herod's schemes. He failed in the desert to tempt the Lord to throw himself off the precipice, remember? And he finally, at Calvary, the devil succeeded in killing the Lord of glory. The devil did it. The popular teaching. Lloyd-Jones had a bit to say about this. He heard a sermon from a young preacher. It goes something like this, this is a quotation if you're looking at your notes. And so he preached, God in reality was doing nothing on Calvary, the young man said. He was entirely passive. Men were acting and God was passively looking on and saying to us, though you have done even that, I'm still ready to forgive you. It was, in other words, your forgiveness. The whole building up of the church was based on a reaction to what evil men did, as though God was taken by surprise. Lloyd-Jones goes on, he says, Such teaching and all the variance of it is entirely wrong and utterly false. It misses the whole glory of the cross and is a complete contradiction of the teaching of Scripture 
And then he writes, We cannot afford to be vague and uncertain as to the meaning of the death on the cross. It's so stupendous a thought, friends, that it leads me to believe no man could ever dream this up. I know. Let's have God kill his son for us. It's not a human thing. Who thinks that way? And so Isaiah goes on. He makes it all the more clear. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He wasn't like a father. This is going to hurt me more than it is you. He was, it pleased the Lord. Friends, the Lord, sovereignty means he only does what pleases him. That's what sovereignty means. He only does what pleases him. Isaiah said it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When he made his soul an offering for sin. That's sovereignty, friends. That's beauty. That is love. Spurgeon preached it this way. I have so many things of Spurgeon. He's said to be the most prolific writer like in the universe. Um, I say these things. I don't check them out for myself. But I've got all these things. And when I think, oh, there's a Spurgeon, there's a Spurgeon sermon on this. How am I going to find it? In the shelves, you know? Well, I did. And so Spurgeon writes this. He who reads Christ's life as a mere history. Now, notice he said mere. So you've got to pay attention to words. Not history, but mere history. In other words, only history. Nothing else. See, as Christians, we know we have history that's an event. And then we have doctrine that tells us God's purpose behind that event. So if it's just mere history, well, there's no purpose behind it. It just happened. So he says, He who reads Christ's life as mere history traces the death of Christ to the enmity of the Jews and to the fickle character of the Roman governor. In this he acts justly. So he tells us we're right. It it is traceable to them. For the crime and sin of the Savior's death must lay at the door of manhood. This race of ours became a deicide and slew the Lord, nailing its Savior to a tree. There's a word for you, deicide. Suicide means to kill yourself. Homicide means to kill a homus, a man, right? Fratricide is to kill a brother. Patricide is to kill a father. And deicide is to kill God. Spurgeon knew what it meant. So the preacher rightly reminds us of the historical facts. The death of Christ is a fact of history. But the scriptures there to offer something additional to the events of history. The scriptures there to explain the meaning of the event in the purposes of God. And it's the preacher's job to bring these two things together to shed light upon the fact, upon the event. Remember Machen, I've told you many times, Christ died, that's history. You don't get saved for knowing that. Everyone knows Christ died. Christ died for our sin, that's doctrine, that's Christianity. And so it's the preacher's job to take the event, which everyone knows happened, and to tell you through inspirational knowledge the meaning and purpose of that event. So Spurgeon preached this. He said, but he who reads the Bible with the eye of faith 
desiring to discover its hidden secrets, sees something more in the Savior's death than Roman cruelty or Jewish malice. He sees the solemn decree of God fulfilled by men who were the ignorant but guilty instruments of its accomplishment. He looks beyond Roman spear and nail, the preacher preaches. He looks beyond Jewish taunt and jeer up to the sacred fount whence all things flow and he traces the crucifixion of Christ to the breast of deity. He believes with Peter, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. In one verse, Peter says the same thing. Jesus was slain by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And I told you what foreknowledge means. It's not ESP. It's love. And he preached that in 1858 at the Music Hall Royal Surrey Gardens on January 14th, if you're interested. So men killed Jesus at Calvary. That's history. God delivered Jesus up to be killed at Calvary. That's doctrine. It's always the doctrine that reveals God's purpose in the event, and so we're presented here with that implacable scriptural dichotomy. It's always before us. God is sovereign over the affairs of men, but men are still responsible for their actions. Those two things stand side by side. Get used to that relationship. The whole of chapter 9 is about that. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how can he still find fault with Pharaoh? Who are you? To answer back to God. That's his answer. Never think of God as being caught off guard by human cruelty. He's not taken by surprise. Peter doubles down on that Pentecost sermon where Spurgeon quoted him. He said, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Friends, those priests and that governor did not foreordain anything before the foundation of the world. That was done by God. The crucifixion of Jesus was not an accident of history. It was not the result of hateful men. It was foreordained by God. It happened just as planned. In fact, it so much was according to plan, you can see it in the feasts. You can see it in the Passover, the choosing of the Lamb, the examination of Him to be perfect, and you you could pronounce him perfect and without blemish, the best of the flock, the firstborn male of his mother. All of these things, you can see it in the choice of the Son of God. That's why Passover was given to us, so when the Lamb appeared, we would see it. We had rehearsed it for 1,400 years, once a year, and now we see it, and they missed it. They missed it. It was foreordained by God. Interesting that Pontius Pilate made the same mistake that so many of us make today. 
He said to Jesus, can you imagine this? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? That's what he said to Jesus. And Jesus said, here's Jesus standing there already beaten, already having his clothes stripped off, whipped, and the clothes put back on. They must have been bleeding through the back of his tunic. And he says, you could have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is not standing there thinking, boy, this is strange. I didn't know this was going to happen. It was painful. He was really a man. It was just as painful for him as for you and me it would have been. This is the typical exchange that reveals the sharp distinction between divine decree and human assumptions about divine decrees. Now, I said something last week that I might have added a few qualifiers to. See, I go back and I I look at the sermons and I listen to them and I see the mistakes I make and then I see the parts where Karen corrected me from the front row and the pots where she didn't, and I, I got left with it. But I, I was doing that thing when I talk about evangelicals today, and we, have, we love our little dainty doctrines. And I make fun of those, as you know sometimes, sing-songy ditties that pass for doctrine. And at the same time, they ignore the troublesome truths of the Bible. Well, I don't care how I was saved, I just know that I am. I guess you can go to heaven with that. I don't know if you can have much assurance with that. I like the doctrine assures me of things. So I said, stop trying to defend God. Friends, we don't have to defend God. He really defends himself. You don't have to clean up his character. The New Testament's not intended to soften the image of the Old Testament God. Friends, the glory of the gospel is not that you were saved. The glory of the gospel is that Christ saved you. That's the glory of the gospel. It's not, oh, I just know that I'm saved. I don't care how. Well, you should care how. The Christian is taught to defend the character of God. He says, God is love, which is true, of course. John says it several times in 1 John, right? God is love, but I always say, but that's not all he is. Did you read the rest of the Bible? Never develop a doctrine on one verse. I belabored that last week. Of course God is love. He's also justice and truth and wrath. He's all those things. He's righteous indignation, and it's only appeased by wrathful censure. And so God must vent the full measure of his righteous wrath upon some responsible party. Someone has to pay for the sin of man. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost determined from eternity past that the Son of God would be the voluntary candidate to receive the full vent of the wrath of God for the sin of man. God did that. That's the glory of it, friends. Christ endured it. That's the glory of it. We know it happened. We've been inspired by the Holy Spirit. to. It's been revealed to us. That's the glory of it. And so the apostle writes to another church, He said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Even more profoundly, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. We didn't reconcile ourselves, God reconciled us. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we pass it on like I'm doing now. I'm passing on that glory of how you were reconciled. The ministry of reconciliation. That's what the gospel is. 
How do I get reconciled with God? Well, first, first of all, recognize that God sacrificed Jesus so he didn't have to kill you and me. Never think of Jesus as trying to escape the cross. I hope you don't do that. He was never like, he knew what was going to happen to him when he got there. He knew he had riled those priests up, right? You are of your father, the devil. You are sons of Abraham. But you, you know what I mean? He, he riled them up. Before Abraham was, I am, he said, and they took up stones to stone him. And they said, you're not yet 50 years old. How did you know our father Abraham? Oh, he riled them up. He knew what was going to happen. Never think of the cross as an accident or the mere political policy of an evil party in Palestine or the judgment of a weak politician. You know, I have to say, am I the only one that feels sorry for Pontius Pilate? See, I, I do. He said he was innocent, right? He tried to make it happen. He had to go with the crowd. If you know a little of his history, you'd know that as a political point, he had to let those priests take Jesus. I mean, he didn't know anything was really special about Jesus, except he was kind of popular among some and not among others, right? And so, you see, when Pilate was appointed to be governor of Judea, he was appointed by Augustus, the Caesar of Rome, and the emperor of Rome, and he appointed him to Palestine, and he came in, and he was supposed to bring peace to Palestine, because the Jews are feisty people. They had overthrown the, uh, the Romans a couple of hundred years earlier, and they held it off for a couple of hundred years, the Maccabees. So he went in there to quiet all this down, and instead he riled it all up, and he brought these ensigns, I don't know if you ever heard this, the golden shields into Jerusalem, and the Jews went berserk over this. And a hundred thousand of them protested around his headquarters in Caesarea, and he either had to slaughter them all or relent and take away the golden shields. And because of political pressure, he took away the shields. He did what was good for the Jews at the time. Here, he had the opposite pressure. He couldn't release Jesus. And so what did he do? He did the opposite of what the priests do. The priests slice the lamb's throat. They sprinkle the blood on the horns of the altar, and they hold up the blood as, a, as an offering to God. The blood is on their hands. He did the opposite. He washed his hands and said, his blood's on you. It's not on me. I always felt he, in the sovereignty of God, he was in a bad place. But alas, I do digress, and I know it. Matthew's, from Matthew's gospel, we read, you know, this will show you that God doesn't like when evangelicals mix up this relationship about who did what. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. He's telling his disciples, that's us, but he's, in this case it was Peter and the others, right? Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. That's not who we want to be by explaining away the cross. We're here to defend the gospel of God, not the God of the gospel. Paul in Philippians 1.4 talks about defense he stands in defense and confirmation of the gospel, he says. Peter said, always be ready, ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. 
So we defend the gospel. That's who we are. There are some who believe that men caused the crucifixion. There are some who believed it was the devil. They forget that God's love for his son was in no way diminished by the cross. It was established. The son's love for the father was certainly established that he endured that. I remember a time, it was probably that high, a little Catholic boy from a Catholic family, and it was Good Friday, and I said, Mom, why do they call it Good Friday? Now, my mother was smart. She was a linguist. She had a master's degree in foreign language, taught and spoke several foreign languages, and she knew Catholic doctrine. She grew up a Catholic. She went to um, uh, Catholic college, and I said, Mom, why do they call it Good Friday? It was Friday. She said, well, that's the day that Jesus was crucified. I went, well, why do they call it good? She was in no way prepared to tell me why. This is why. This is why it's Good Friday. Because God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's why it's good. Resurrection's day is better. They should call it Better Friday or Better Sunday or something. But... Good Friday, she, they had no good answer. They didn't know. They didn't study doctrine. They were just told stuff and did stuff. You know? And by the way, I believe it was Good Thursday, as you know. <laughs> and I can defend that. But uh, I, don't, I won't digress there now. Um, there are types of Christ in the Bible. You're familiar with that. You've done Bible study. You know Joseph was a type of Christ. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison. He was abused. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, it goes on and on with the Joseph, right? And so many of them. I mean, Moses is a type of Christ. Elijah, uh, more a type of John the Baptist. But, you know, there were types in the scriptures, and they foreshadow the thing that's coming, all right? So there were types of Christ, and in this case, Abraham offering up Isaac is probably the most commonly recognized type of Christ for sacrificing of your son, as you can see why. You remember, God promised Abraham's son. It didn't come as fast as he and his wife thought should, so they arranged a carnal plan for children with the, with the maid girl, Hagar, right? And they got Ishmael. You know, it was 14 years later when Isaac was born. You ever do the math? It's quite a while, and they were old. And so God gives him the son between him and Sarah, which he had promised him. And note this, he has a son named Ishmael. He now has a son named Isaac, the son of promise. The next chapter in Romans is this this, this seed of the woman and the seed of promise. All right? But notice what God says. Take now thy son, thy only son. He didn't recognize Ishmael. Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I believe that that mountain was Mount Zion, where the temple was put. The Samaritans didn't believe that. They believed it was Mount Gerizim, and they built their temple at Mount Gerizim. You remember Jesus with the Samaritan woman? She said, you Jews say we should worship here. We say we should worship there. Where shall we worship? And Jesus told her, it's about spirit and truth. It's not about where. Right? But she was talking about the two different mountains. You know, the, um, the Muslim faith holds that 
Abraham did this very thing, but he, sacri- but he went up to kill Ishmael. Did you know that? They switch it around because they trace their lineage to Ishmael. So you can see, take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. This is a great theme in Christianity throughout history. Um, let me tell you a story of the Renaissance. 1401, there was a great contest in Florence. The Renaissance was breaking out. All the great art and music was coming out in southern Europe, mostly in Italy. And there was a baptistry and a great, uh, a great cathedral in Florence. And we call it today the Duomo, right? We call it the Duomo. Sophia <laughs> spent some time there. And it's this great structure by Brunelleschi, and it's very famous. But at the time, that wasn't there, and there was this baptistry, and it's just a place where they baptize, but it's like a huge cathedral. I've seen it. I've gone in it. And there's these gigantic bronze doors, maybe 20 feet high, and I forget how wide, and there's all these plaques on them that are relief sculptures of all the different um, events of the, of the Bible. And so there was this great contest to decide who was going to uh, carve the bronze doors at the... Uh, at the Baptistry of St. John in Florence in 1401. And the subject was the artists involved had to make a relief sculpture, the right size, to go on the door. There were, I think, probably 12 on each door. And it had to picture the point in history where the angel stopped Abraham's knife from killing Isaac. Isn't that wild? And there were two contenders... Filippo Brunelleschi and Lorenzo Ghiberti, and if you want to know the truth, Ghiberti won, and thank God, because that left Brunelleschi with time to build the Duomo. That's the great red cathedral that's ribbed. Another quick story, if I may. Supposedly, after the Duomo was built, and it had this red brick like pie pieces of a pie, and it's ribbed with white marble, and supposedly Michelangelo walked up to there, looked at Brunelleschi, the architect, and said, looks like a beehive. (laughs) And Brunelleschi smashed him in the face, broke his nose, and later on, on the east wall of the... uh, of the uh, Sistine Chapel, not the 16th Chapel, like, like Justin Bieber called it, but the Sistine Chapel. And it shows St. Bartholomew holding his skin because he was skinned alive. And it shows the face of a man with a broken nose. <laughs> Michelangelo had painted himself, as they always used to like to do, paint themselves into the thing. So now that I've digressed with all of that, just to show you how seriously Christians take these events... Friends, to Jewish ears, our verse today is definitely a reference to Abraham. When you say God did not spare his own son, they know full well that Abraham did. God did spare Abraham's son, right? They think right away of Abraham. And so MacArthur writes this in his commentaries. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is a beautiful foreshadow of God the Father's willingness to go to the cross. It's a foreshadow. Foreshadowing is a great device in, uh, in fiction. You're reading something and you see something and you think, that's a hint of what's going to happen. It's foreshadowing. It's a wonderful device. And it's in Scripture. It's a little more primitive in Scripture. But MacArthur recognizes this clearly. And he says it's a beautiful foreshadow of God the Father's willingness 
to go to the cross. God intervened to spare Isaac and provided a ram in his place. You know the story. At that point, however, the analogy changes from comparison to contrast because God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, I want to tell you, if you take each word and give it its proper emphasis, the word own, his own son. Did you notice that? He usually just says his son. But here he says his own son, not Abraham's son. God took his own son. You see the foreshadowing technique? Um, And so Paul asks, so that covers you for the first half of the verse. Now Paul asks, how shall he not with him also give us all things? I'm going to give you an illustration of this. Um, It goes back to Dwight L. Moody. I had to look this one up too, but I remembered it. And uh, with him it was quite short. I'm going to make a short story long. Um, And here's, here's my illustration of... How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? From Dwight L. Moody. A man walks into a friend's jewelry store. He's looking to buy a gift for his wife for their anniversary. There were many different gems and stones to choose from. Some more expensive, some less expensive. You ever been to a jewelry store? His eye was drawn to a diamond display where in the middle of it was a large clear stone. It was set there so everyone's eye would be drawn to that one expensive diamond, right? And the jeweler, being the man's friend, said to him, now that would make a beautiful gift. It was bigger and purer. If you know anything about diamonds, they can be big and and not valuable because they're not pure, you know? Not all the carbon has been crystallized or something, right? Right? But this was, was the perfect diamond. It was, it was bigger than the others, and it was pure right through. And it was, of course, quite out of the man's budget, so he chose a lesser stone. The jeweler took the display into the back room to put the stone in a setting. He came out with the gem set in a box. You know how it is, right? And he put the box in one of those little brown paper bags like you get at the jeweler's. And the man paid for the stone, and he left the store. And as he walked along the way, he couldn't resist opening the box to see the diamond ring he had purchased. And when he did, he saw that the great stone he had admired but could not afford was in the box instead of the one he chose. Now, a couple of things go through his mind. Was it a mistake? So he didn't know whether to rejoice or to feel that a great mistake had been made, which he would later maybe have to pay for, right? So he thought it best to return to the store and alert the jeweler of his mistake. So he approaches the counter, and he tells the jeweler what happened. And the jeweler said to him, I was so impressed with your love for your wife that I made a gift of the great diamond to you. It's my gift to you. It's your gift to her because of my love for you. So the man was overwhelmed by the love and generosity of his friend. So he took the gift, he put it back in the box, but his his friend noticed that he was still hesitant to leave the store. Something was bothering him. He seemed perplexed. And so the jeweler said, "Is, is something wrong? And the man told him of his concern. He said, you gave me this great gift, and yet I was thinking of asking you for something more. Surely I'm an ungrateful person. Have you ever felt that way? Probably should have. (laughs) 
And so he's looking at himself like, what? My, my friend is so good and charitable, and I'm just so evil. He's given me all this, and I'm asking him for something else. So the jeweler said, happily, what, what more can I do? And the man said, I was wondering if it would not be too pro- presumptuous of me to ask for a piece of paper to wrap it in. And the jeweler said to him, I gave you the best I had. It's a token of my friendship and my esteem for you. You have the best I had to offer. How could you be reluctant to ask me for a worthless scrap of paper? It will be my pleasure to wrap it for you. So he did. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We got the diamond, which is invaluable. Pearl of great price, right? And all the supplications we make are like the wrapping paper. They're not expensive to you or to God. And so likewise, the Lord said, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus said this in so many other ways, and I'll close with these. He said, I've come that you may have life. That's the great thing. And have it more abundantly. He said, whatever you ask in my name, name, I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. Asking things of God glorifies God because you're glorifying Him as the righteous source of all things. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the gospel. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you for these verses. For this apostle, O Lord, for all those who have enlightened us with the truth of it down through the ages, and Father, we praise you for this moment to look into these things again, to praise you yet again, and to show our thankfulness, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.